Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 1st, 2018. This is episode 2302 of the Survival Podcast. And it was a listener feedback show. Here's what we got on deck for you today. The first two stories really we're going to cover together because it's, it's a forward-looking thing of what's going to go on economically with international trade. I'm going to say some things that are pretty positive about Donald Trump. At least it's the way it's going to come across. Remember, I am the weatherman. I do not get political. I don't back any of the people that run the government at all. But I do uh, believe in something called truth. Uh, we're going to talk about the fact that Mexico and Canada <clears throat> just folded to Donald Trump. I don't do a lot of current events anymore, but you know sometimes we need to take a look at what's going on around us. So there's going to be a new NAFTA. It's actually not called the, the NAFTA anymore. It's the uh, USMCA agreement, which completely redoes NAFTA and is a better deal for the United States. Is it a great deal? It's better. Okay. Additionally, Japan and the United States have agreed to negotiate a free trade agreement between the two countries. We're talking about what that means and what's coming next with all of the naysayers with Trump's economic policies. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about can't stick in politics because we'll get bored, right? We got to do some stuff that you, hey, Kavanaugh, I'm not even going to go there. I'm like, you want the Kavanaugh thing? Here you go. Kavanaugh will be appointed to the Supreme Court by the end of the week. Done. Next. Uh, so we're going to go to something more important here. Um, we will, we're going to talk about how to overwinter sweet potatoes because that actually applies to your life. That actually on some level does affect the metaphorical temperature of the water in your pool. All right. Next, um, we're going to talk about herb-infused meads. I'm going to give you some thoughts on that. I'm going to talk to you about kids and responsible knife use. And one thing that even though I, I agree with the sentiment, I think it's a very, 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 one more time, very, very bad idea. Um, we're going to also talk about uh, when you should and should not take money out of a 401k to start a business or a side hustle even. Um, how I make buying decisions when it comes to food based on certifications and things like that. And we're going to talk about contrast. Our final story today, we're going to go back into current events a little bit. There's a new law in California. What it requires is women must be appointed to the board of directors of a company headquartered in California. And it, that means it doesn't matter where your, your state of incorporation is, but where is your headquarters? Where, where is your, you know, your main location for the headquarters of your company? If it's in the borders of the state of California, you must have a woman on the board of directors. Yes, that's an insane law. That is not about equality. That is about creating a privileged class. You get a job whether you're qualified or not. I, I understand that. We're going to contrast it, though, with something that Airbnb is trying to do. Airbnb has a new thing that they're asking the SEC. They're begging the government to let them do. These evil, evil bastards who are all about making as much money as they can in the free market system uh, and enabling people to do things like rent out their homes uh, so that they can make some money off of their, their real property. Now you know what these evil bastards want to do next. Now what they want to do is if you are an Airbnb host, if you are significantly contributing to Airbnb in some way, and I guess there would be some kind of formula, that you know maybe annually or quarterly or every five years or something that they'll give you stock. Yeah, they'll give it to you. The bastards. 
Okay, they, what I'm saying is, let's say you, especially if you're a property owner that has like four or five properties, um, Airbnb benefits a lot from you renting your property on their platform, don't they? I mean, they really do. They, without you, they don't have a business. It's like Uber doesn't have a business without Uber drivers. And unlike Uber, who can eventually and probably will replace the drivers with automated vehicles, uh, Airbnb cannot create automated housing. Someone has to put up that real estate. Someone has to maintain that real estate. So what Airbnb is saying is these people are so critical to our company, we want to give them stock in our company. We want to set aside a block of shares and over time distribute those shares to people that substantially contribute to the Airbnb platform. Government says can't do it. I want to contrast that with a governor, government in California mandating placing women on a board of directors. And I think that'll be really interesting when we get there. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. You know, if it's herbal and legal and you can get it in the United States, you could probably find it at Western Botanicals. And if you pick up the phone and you call them, you'll get somebody in Utah, not New Delhi, that answers the phone that helps you with your customer service. And if you're a member of the MSB, you can get their uh, their discount membership program that everybody else pays 50 bucks a year for. You can get it for free through the MSB in your benefits section. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And that'll save you 25% off an already great uh, list of products. And if it's you're getting it from Western Botanicals, it was either wildcrafted or organically grown. Now, why, why wildcrafted or, or you know you can't call something organic if it's wildcrafted? If it grew in the, in, the, in the forest, you can't call it organic. Hold on to that thought for later on when we talk about food labels. Uh, but and Western Botanicals has been with us it's like seven, eight years now. And uh, whenever I order something from them, I always get what I expected. It's always top quality. And like I always say, it's a company run by real people that really care about you. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. The company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website. You can find it all from the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. Right on that website, it's so easy to remember, readymaderesources.com. Before we get into the main topics today, let's take a look at a day in history. This day, October the 1st, 1946. One of those days where I had a, a, a difficult time picking uh, something to talk about. Lots of interesting things happened on this day. Um, but in 1946, Nazi war criminals were sentenced in Nuremberg. Twelve high-ranking Nazis are sentenced to death by International War Crimes Tribunal at Nuremberg. Among those condemned to death by hanging were Joachim von Ribbentrop, uh, Nazi Minister of Foreign Affairs, Hermann Goering, founder of the Gestapo and chief of the American Air Force, uh, and, and William Frick, Minister of the Interior. Several others, including Rudolf Hess, Adolf Hitler's former deputy, were given prison sentences ranging from 10 years to life. Three others were acquitted. The trial, which had lasted nearly 10 months, was conducted by an international tribunal made up of representatives from the United States, the USSR, France, and Great Britain. It was the first trial of its kind in history, and the defendants faced charges ranging from crimes against peace to crimes of war and crimes against humanity. On October 16, 10 of the architects of the Nazi policy were hanged one by one. Hermann Goering, who was sentencing, who had sentencing, was called the leading war aggressor and creator of the oppressive program against the Jews, committed suicide by poison on the eve of his scheduled execution. Nazi party, Nazi party leader Martin Berman uh, was condemned to death in abstentia. He is now known to have died in Berlin at the end of the war. I, I, I just 
to keep it brief on my thoughts on this, we are talking about one of the darkest times in history. And what I always think of when I think of things like the Nazis and when I think of the atrocities that were done throughout the world that have taken the most lives, I always try to remind myself that it was done with the power of the state. And you don't have to be an anarchist to take that and see it as a true warning to continuously put chains, a leash, uh, a ch ball and chain on government. Government is a monster. Government is a monster because of what it's capable of doing for wrong, for, for the malice that it can do. It doesn't mean that it's always wrong. It doesn't mean that it always does bad things. It means that it always could. It has the potential to turn on a dime and, and commit horrific acts and then turn around and call them completely legal. Just my thoughts on that. With that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topics of today's show. I want to start out with um, these two stories that are out. I'm not going to read the articles. I have them linked in the show notes for you if you want to read them yourself. But here's the... the, the You know, the 90-mile view from above of what's just gone on. First, Mexico and Canada just folded to Trump. And there's no other way to caption it other than that. They folded. Mexico actually folded quite a while ago, a couple weeks ago. Said, okay, we'll do this new deal. We'll agree to it. Um, Canada held out till the last minute. But in the end, Canada didn't want to be left um, holding, holding, you know, an empty bag. Um There was some talk that if we didn't bring Canada in on the deal, that maybe Congress would balk. Because it still has to go to Congress and all, but it, they'll talk about it, whatever bullshit, nah, 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 it'll go through. Because it's overall, it's a better deal for the United States. I didn't say it was perfect. I didn't say there's nothing wrong with it. I didn't say there were any mistakes made. Even if I was going to put myself into the mindset of being a statist, if I was going to be a statist conservative and put myself into that mindset and looked at this deal, I could still find some things wrong with it. Yes, there are some things wrong with it. But it's still a better deal for the United States in total. In overall broad scope, it's better for the United States. At the same time that this happened, Canada, I'm sorry, Japan and the United States have announced jointly that they are going to, to negotiate between them a completely free trade agreement, which will be probably not completely free trade, but a free trade agreement. Um, Because if you wanted to do a true free trade agreement, you just say between our two countries there's no tariffs. Anybody can import anything with no taxation whatsoever. Or we're gonna, if you wanted it to be completely, let's say fair trade, maybe not so much free trade, you'd say that there is a standard importation tariff uh, by both nations in the amount uh, not to exceed 5%, right, on any individual class of goods. That would be, you know, so I'm sure it won't be that cut and dry because you wouldn't have to do a lot of negotiation if you were going to do that. But it's another win. And this is what you have to understand about political wins, to understand what this means. Because I keep telling people, you're going to get Trump reelected in 2020 absent a collapse of the economy. Unless we have a major recession between now and 2020, which is, I believe, possible but not probable. I think we might have a pullback in 2019, but you might see a complete raging going into the election year of 2020 of the economy. Something more than you've seen up till now. Doesn't mean blue skies forever. Doesn't mean it won't ever correct. That's kind of how I feel it could be. It's either going to kind of stay like it is and be steady, or you're going to see, a, if you see a pullback in 2019, you're going to see a rage by the end of 2019 going into 2020. Because a lot of this stuff does matter. This stuff does matter. Okay, 
But the big thing is, the people that will say that these are not wins for Trump were people that would never support Trump. These are people that if, if, if Trump came out and said, I am pro-oxygen, beautiful, beautiful oxygen for all, they would wrap a plastic bag around their face, okay? They're going to say this is a failure, it's a disaster. Blah. The people that are pro-Trump are going to bang a drum like he just you know, changed the world forever. But the people in the middle are going to sit back and look at this and go, wait a minute. And the middle always decide national elections. The middle, the extreme left, the extreme right, the mainstream left and the mainstream right, neither decide national elections. There's about 10 to 20% of people that at any moment in time will swing their vote one way or the other. And these people were told Trump is a maniac. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's going to start World War III. He's going to destroy the economy. He's against free trade. He's starting a trade war. He's incompetent. On and on and on. And still enough of them, not a ton, but enough of them moved over to his side anyway just because they were fed up with it. This time you can't make those accusations when we go into another election. You can hate the guy. I don't like him, just so you understand. I don't like the guy personally at all. However, from an economic standpoint, these are wins. They're actually a little bit more minor wins than they're going to be heralded as. But in the mind of people, everybody said he could get nothing. He got something. In fact, quite a bit of something. And no one else could, everybody else admitted there was a problem, but no one else could do anything, and he did. If you have that dynamic going forward, along with people having a reasonably decent opinion about the economy and feeling that next year will probably be a little bit better for them than this year, that's all they have to feel, you get a reelected Donald Trump. And this is, <laughs> before I even go to that shoe dropping, let's talk about what the next shoes to drop are. Now that Canada folded, this is, this is where Trump's deal-making was actually quite brilliant. There were two schools of thoughts on how this should be executed. And I talked about both of them, albeit briefly. But one was, you pick a trade adversary, you isolate them, and you go after them. Don't start a war with, don't start a world trade war. My God, this guy went out, he's going to war with Canada, with Mexico, with Japan, with the EU, and China, all at the same time. He's nuts. No, no, no. See, if you isolate one, that one just has to hold out. And then if you do get them to fold, let's say a year into it, now you got to start all over again with somebody else. And if they fold, and, and everybody else has time to adjust. And there is there is some wisdom there. Maybe you pick the one that is being the least fair in trade relations, and then you can go be dip more diplomatic with the other, say, hey, if I can work it out with China, surely you and I, we could come up with some. But if you play hardball with everybody, and everybody holds their breath and says, I'm not breathing, and one person falling goes, okay, I'll do it, and Mexico went first. And then Canada goes, shit. You know, maybe the, their Congress won't approve a bilateral agreement, but what if they do? What if Mexico has a favorable trade position with the United States because of this, and we're not there? So Canada goes, oh, okay, okay, last minute. I know we said we wouldn't do it, but we're in. We're part of this now, so you got that one done. At the same time, Japan was never really that adversarial. It was just like, hey, come on, guys, we can do something. That was the diplomatic play, but they had to be part of it too. You kind of knew you were going to get that win. And you get that way. Now, what do you think the European Union 
and the Chinese are thinking right now? I'll tell you what they're thinking. Shit. If we don't do something. So China's already announced that they're going to they're going to they're going to reduce some tariffs before we even have an agreement. Now what do you think the EU's saying? Oh crap. We got to do we can't lose out. If if the United States makes these deals with 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 Japan, Canada and Mexico and not us, it's bad. If they do it with China and not us, we're screwed. We got to be part of this because this is the biggest economic market in the in the world. So they come to the table, and and Trump lays down what will look like politically, you know, a straight flush. Aces high, spades across the row. Right? I mean, that's what it's going to look like. And the reason that's important is you're going to get Donald Trump 2.0. And let me tell you something about Donald Trump 2.0. Donald Trump 2.0 will be Trump's true colors. In the end, Donald Trump is a statist. And he is more like the Democrats than the Republicans. Now, to be fair, he is more like the old school Democrats. The guys that are still around, they're older than dirt, they're pretending to be new order socialists, and they are old order socialists. Right? The, 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 the rhino Republicans and the kind of mainstream conservative edged Democrats of the 1970s and 80s, that's who Donald Trump is. That's his generation. And Donald Trump is for socialized medicine. And I don't think Trump can give you socialized medicine, give you, shove it up your ass, in the first term. He'll lose his base. When he gets reelected, this is when you get some sort of a government takeover of healthcare. And he'll push it as being beneficial and good. And the Democrats that would put a bag around their head and not breathe air because Trump told them they should breathe air, will embrace that. And they'll actually talk about it as though they're the ones charging forward and they're going to force Trump's hand and blah, 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 blah. Uh-uh. That deal will be made behind closed doors and it will be done before it starts. Now, could I be wrong about this? Sure. I could be wrong about anything. Never, I, I'm never that egotistical. This is my best estimate of what your future holds. And this is why you have talk show hosts out there, like uh, the, the, the comedy hosts and shit, you know, basically praying for a recession. Because anybody with eyes to see knows this. This guy's going to get reelected with a positive economy. And when he starts having wins like this, and if he gets the nuclear disagree, uh, disarmament agreement with North Korea, and I think he's going to, this guy, this, this, this uh, Kim Jong Ding Dong, right? <laughs> Uh, he wants his country to be modernized. Remember, this is a guy, he went to school in Europe. It was either Sweden or Switzerland or somewhere like that. He went to private school in Europe. He knows what the rest of the world looks like. He, he, he's smart enough. He's not, people think this guy's nuts. This guy's smart. You can be a malicious bastard. You can be a psychopath. You can be a murderous dictator and be smart and not crazy. He wants to turn the corner with his country. Not because he's a good guy, because it's what he wants to do. It's what he wants his legacy to be. He's continued the policies of his father and grandfather because they keep people in line. He's got a powder keg. 
he's got to unwind this really carefully because if he unwinds it too quickly, he could either have a popular revolution or a coup d'etat. And don't think either one can't happen there because they can. And so that's the position he's in. But he wants, he's got this deal with the Russians to put a railroad right through North Korea all the way down into South Korea. That's a done deal as long as everything else goes okay. Everybody's already put their money in on this deal going through. That happens, and you've got popularity for this guy despite people hating him. That will be through the roof. And here's something else you need to know about Donald Trump. Again, this isn't pro. This is I am the weatherman forecasting a storm, or I'm forecasting a sunny day. I don't have any emotional attachment to it. It's just this is what the radar says. Donald Trump's numbers will always be lower than they really are. Say that one more time. Donald Trump's numbers will always be reported as lower than they are. Not because of a deep state conspiracy. Not because of the media hating him. Because there are people that are legitimately afraid to say they support Trump. They are legitimately afraid. Even when it's a, a, a person on the phone... This says they don't know who you are. They got your number somehow. So it might come out. There are people that are terrified to say, I support Trump. Even people that don't like him and just think like, well, I don't like him, but compared to anybody else that I have to pick from right now, I think he's going to do a better job, so I'm going to pick him. They're terrified to say it, and that number will always be repressed. Don't be surprised. Just don't be surprised when you see this guy have a, oh, it might not be a... Uh, a Reagan-like victory, you know, Reagan's re-election, it might not be that much of a landslide, but it may be bigger, it may be somewhere between what he had in the last election and Reagan, maybe about halfway, like a meet in the middle point, on the Electoral College. Because all of those states that he took that nobody thought he could take, life's a little better there now. Not a lot, just a little, and it's going to continue to improve for quite a while. And these types of deals make that happen because when you get these deals, it's not the direct result. The direct result of these deals is really small. You can go back and Reagan did a bunch of shit like this. This is right out of Reagan's playbook. No one talks about it because it never ended up mattering now. They just look at the success of the economy. That's all they look at. But Reagan did a lot of these types of things, and they had very little direct impact. You know, as far as how many direct jobs they saved or how many direct jobs they created. But indirectly. They give investors confidence. And I'm not talking about the people that are you know, trading for, for 401k mutual funds. I'm talking about the investors that actually say, here's, here's $50 million, go build this thing. They give those investors the confidence to do business in America and with America. And that does have a major impact. So there's what's coming. Again, if you don't like it, don't be angry with me. I'm just telling you what's coming. Next up, we've got a question here from Bruce in Atlanta. Bruce is going to be coming to the workshop. See you soon, Bruce. Uh, he says, how to set, harvest, and overwinter Japanese sweet, sweet potatoes? Details, this year I ordered a dozen sweet potato slips of the variety you recommended in What to Grow podcast. They appeared, uh, appealed to me both as edible and ornamental plants. I plan, it, plan to grow them on terraces hanging over a vertical rock face for a nice look. The slips arrived as six to nine inch pieces of stem, almost shriveled to death due to spending an hour or more in a hot mailbox. I was able to save them all, half recovered in a glass of water and half in my aquaponics wicking beds. 
I heard you mention on a recent aquaponics system update something about getting them to set a tuber. Also, it may or may not be a good veggie for aquaponics due to its root habitats. I haven't harvested anything but the green, so I don't know what I'll find when I dig them up from uh, wicking and ebb and flow beds. What should I do over winter to be sure I have good plants and terraces for next year? I plan to move the aquaponics into a basement uh, with a few grow beds for the winter, so that is an option. Thanks for all you do and helping us live a better life. Bruce. Um, so, here's the thing. I, wicking beds are wonderful, and I love them, and they are a thing you can do in aquaponics, but they are not an aquaponics thing in and of themselves. You can do wicking beds with some pipe and some gravel and a weed blocker and a bucket of water to fill it up once every couple days. So whatever I said about aquaponics and sweet potatoes, and we'll get that in a second, has nothing to do with wicking beds. You, you have nothing to fear of sweet potatoes in your wicking beds. I grow them like crazy in my wicking beds. They do fantastic in my wicking beds, and they set wonderful tubers in my wicking beds. However, one of the things you want to do with sweet potatoes to get them to set tubers heavily is toward the end of your season, dry those beds out a bit, stop supplying water to them, stress them a little bit. Not all stress them until they're dying, but stress them a little bit. Don't keep them in an absolute perfect condition because it says to them, time's almost up, boys. You better put down the next generation or you're going to be screwed. Okay? So do that with as well. Ebb and flow beds. Well, the reason I said not to do that, um, I'm going to I'm, I have an ebb and flow bed that is just... I've let it grow just out of fascination. How how big can these vines get? I need to put up some pictures of this thing. It's insane. I put one slip in the seven flow bed on my Miyagi pond, and uh, the, the 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 wall of that pond is eight feet wide, and the the vine now is longer is wider than the wall. It wraps around both sides. I would say that you're looking at like twelve, sixteen, eighteen feet. And then it cascades down the wall fully and is is going another eight or ten feet on the ground. It, it, it it's absolutely insane. The problem is they put so much hair root out in the ebb and flow beds they completely clog everything up. It works, but it's you know it's always you're messing with it a little bit here and there, um, and it just it's it's unmanageable. So that particular bed will have to be this year when the season's over, basically torn down and rebuilt. And it's a one day, you know, like a couple hours, three hour project during the winter when you have the time. It's not a horrible deal, but I, I just don't think that you really need to do that. So that's why I said not to do that. As far as overwintering them, you're in Georgia, so you may be able to get away with overwintering them out, you know, outside if they're heavily mulched. I have had them overwinter here just fine as long as they were heavily mulched. But if you're going to be bringing your aquaponic system inside, including your wicking beds, then my suggestion would be take some cuttings before you bring it in and root them. When you bring your aquaponics in, go ahead and I don't know if you're going to leave those wicking beds outside. The pictures you sent me, they look pretty big. Um, they're not as big as mine, but they still look like they'd have some serious weight to them. So I don't know that you're going to be bringing your wicking beds in. If you're going to leave your wicking beds outside, consider bringing one in. Just bring one in and attach it to your aquaponic system if you're going to be leaving the rest outside. Make some slips and put them in that bed. Put your lights over it. Harvest your others as you see fit for your tubers. And by spring, you'll have a you know you'll you'll be pruning like crazy. And when you want to replant them, just take cuttings and make slips from the cuttings instead of starting slips from a root. 
Sweet potatoes are pretty easy to make slips from. And slips, why we call them that, because we slip the chute off of the tuber and then we root it. What you do is you take a, a shallow pan of water and lay the potato down in it. And after a week or two, it'll start sending up little shoots. And once they get up to a certain size, you slip them off and put them in like a glass of water. And they'll root. But, and this is what I'm going to do this year, if you grow one as a house plant through the winter, you're so far ahead in the spring. Because when you take full-size cuttings and strip the leaves off of those and root those, and in an aquaponics system is a great way to do it. If you have a deep water tank, I only have one deep water tank, and I keep it just for doing stuff like this. If you take those slips and put them into that deep water tank, they will root so much faster and so much more aggressively uh, than they will root in a glass. That moving water changes everything for them. And if you do that, you'll be able to make as many of these things as you want for the rest of your life. I'm actually thinking about putting a terrarium together, and one of the plants I plan on growing in there might be sweet potato, just to have yet another source of cuttings. So I, I personally think that the best thing you could do for yourself is grow a sweet potato houseplant. Just every winter... Pick a place where there's enough light or you have some artificial lighting and grow a houseplant. Now, if you're going to bring your aquaponics indoors and you're going to bring one of your wicking beds and just just bake some slips, stick them in there. And you will have more than you know what to do with as we come into the next side of the seasons. So those are my thoughts on that. Um, I actually, in my wicking beds, they're 100-gallon Rubbermaid tubs, so you're not going to be picking those up and bringing them in without digging them out. Um, I leave the plants in there. I just leave them in there. And when, through the winter, when we want to sweep it, I just go out and dig into the bed and pull them out. Uh, usually I get about 10 to 12 nice tubers per bed. And there's uh, nine beds, so, you know, 54, somewhere between 50 and 75 big tubers. And one tubers is a meal for me and Dorothy. I mean, they're talking about big. Um, and then sometimes there's some make it through and, and just sprout on their own, but... As an insurance policy, I'm going to grow that houseplant. Suggest you guys do the same. It just seems easier to me. So much easier. Uh, you have a pretty houseplant, and, man, once you have those cuttings, you can just root them so quickly. Changing gears again, let's talk a little bit about mead. Todd sends me an email. This is interested in your thoughts on making meads, methylogens, uh, using medicinal herbs. Details my husband and I have been making So this can't be Todd. This must be it's Michelle. Just Todd's email address. You think? All right. So Michelle says my husband and I have been making mead off and on for 13 years. I'm a bit of a history nerd. I know that mead was sometimes used to store herbs and was even viewed as medicine. I'd be interested on in your thoughts are on applying that historical application in modern mead making and herbalism. I'm interested in this for two reasons. Firstly, if you think it would be a value creating mead and herbs to balance moods, such as feeling of calm or even to support the immune system. Secondly, we live in a region with a growing uh, agritourism industry, specifically wine tourism. We've toyed with the idea of opening a meadery to be able to support ourselves, at least in part, from our homestead. Um, I think this could be a unique angle to market mead from, which might be necessary, uh, as there are already a few meaderies opening in our larger region. I wonder if you think it might be an idea worth pushing particularly if we would want to produce many of the herbs and fermentals on our own homestead uh, in a very niche, very small batch business. Thanks for everything, Michelle in California. Well, Michelle, I think it's an interesting idea. Let's, let's talk about the business side of things first. I would not market a mead as an herbal medicine. The, the confluence of Department of Making You Sad 
um, uh, governmental agencies in that makes me sad to even think about it. So that's not the angle I would take. Um, when you get into something being even beneficial to your health uh, in any way, there's a whole new line of shit that you have to deal with with USDA, etc. You got enough to deal with with trying to be, let's say, a nano uh, metery. And I don't know what the laws are like in California for that, but if there's some there, then it must be you know something that's doable. I think maybe specializing in methylogens might be a very interesting niche. Um, herbal meads, and you can, in your marketing, then talk about the traditional herbal mead reasoning. I think it'd be a way to go. And there are some fantastic methylogens, and I think they are an incredibly underrated mead. I think that everybody's gotten on board with putting berries and vanilla and everything. Uh, and you just, yeah, it's, you know, and meads, in general, I think the mead market is dominated by very sweet meads. Uh, they're trying to appeal to, you know, people that are just barely old enough to drink or something at Renaissance festivals still, I think, and, and going with a drier herbed meat. And a lot of the herbs are somewhat bitter. And using, so that we, if we have a mead that's still technically a sweet mead, being able to balance it with bitterness the same way we use hops in beer uh, would be a really great play. I will say this about the effectiveness or efficacy of herbs when fermented in mead, and I don't know if it would apply if you fermented it in something else. There does seem to be something to this. Uh, my now infamous three flowers blend, which is chamomile, uh, heather flower, and elderflower. There's nothing in there that should have any sort of psychoactive properties to it. It really should. I mean, and I think it's the heather. I'm not 100%, but I, I really think it's the heather. And I've heard some things about heather honey having some level of additional mental impact when you make mead from it and consume that mead. And I can believe that it's definitely possible after what I've experienced. The first time I ever made a batch of Three Flowers Blend, and I, I, to this day I cannot tell you what made me think, yeah, you know, uh, put... Put these three uh, flowers together and use three quarters of a flipping cup to a gallon. Like, that's a lot. I, I don't know what it was. It was like, I just it was making so many different small batch meats. I'm like, let's see what happens. So this stuff finished and it cleared really quickly. And when I tasted it, I was like, that's fantastic. And I'm like, I know what this is going to be. This is going to be a mead that people either love or they hate. There's going to be nobody that's like, it's okay. It's going to be like the, and I hate to say this because I'm not a big fan of IPAs, guys. I'm really not. The, the right APA on a cold winter's day is kind of nice. But other than that, it's, it's been overdone. But it's kind of like the IPA of, of meats. And, and it doesn't taste anything like an IPA. What I mean by that is you either love IPAs or you hate them, right? You're never like, oh, this is okay, right? So that's what I knew this would be. But the first time I, I made some and I bottled up, It all, and I ended up with about an eight ounce little pint jelly jar that was, you know, there wasn't enough to, to make another bottle. And I set that in the refrigerator and I said, That's my reward for being a good boy and doing my bottling when I'm supposed to. I'll drink that tonight. Now, anybody that's come hung out here know that, you know, occasionally I have an adult beverage or four. And uh, drinking eight ounces of mead should have almost no impact on me at all. Um, and I sipped it because I was really trying to enjoy it. And By the time it was gone, my head was doing things that it doesn't do from alcohol. 
And I want to say it was similar but not the same as an impact from cannabis um, in a different way, but more like that than alcohol. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And I think that there are certain chemical things, uh, components within herbs that when they not just are infused with alcohol, because we can make tinctures, but when they go through the fermentation process and maybe some of the things that are unique in the properties of honey, they have a totally different impact. So I would encourage you, I mean, first of all, small batch is so easy to make. Start making small batch herbs, meats, and trying them. But from the business side, if it doesn't taste well, good, it won't sell well. Now, it doesn't have to taste like everybody else's meat, and it probably shouldn't. This is my main problem with the mainstream meat market. It all tastes the same. It's all sweet. It all tastes like honey. And I hear people and they tell me, you know, well, I, I want my meat to be high gravity. I make meats that are 17%, 18%, and they're not sweet. Get a good attenuating yeast, attenuate that shit out. Um, and try making some sweeter ones as well. And then try balancing that. That, that That's kind of the, the approach I would take. Now, I will say this too. There's a lot of people that the way they do meats, and I think this might be part of the problem that, that the, the commercial market has, they don't make a, a raspberry ginger meat, right? which is a great meat, by the way, and it's not sweet because raspberry is quite tart, and when it ferments out, the sugar's gone, etc. They don't make a herbed mead. They don't make a blueberry mead. They make mead. They make plain old everyday mead, and they use you know some some tricks to get it to ferment quickly so that they can you know make money, um, which I'm not putting them down because they have to because you can't sit around waiting two years to put a bottle on the street as a new business. You can't do it. But they make a giant batch of mead, and then they flavor it. So if they're going to make a raspberry ginger mead. They take, they draw off their tank, and they infuse it with raspberry and ginger. And maybe it goes through a little secondary fermentation, but what they're more likely to have done is made a raspberry wine, and then they blend that raspberry wine with some ginger extract in it back into the primary mead. And I'm not saying you can't make a decent mead that way, but I'm saying it's not the same thing because the, the things did not go through the fermentation process together. So to me, I think if you're going to be successful with making herbal meads, the herbs need to go into the fermenter. Now, they may go in on a secondary ferment, or they may go in on the primary ferment. And I think you have to play with that to find it. But those are just some thoughts I have on that. On that note, um, I do have a really cool item of the day to you that's perfect for small batch mead makers that we'll be talking about at the end. And also, like we're talking about alcohol right now, so like you might want to, if you don't really like go to the website often, and you don't like hang out uh, on Facebook or our Instagram and see the photos that go um, with the uh, the episodes, you might want to just cruise by the website every once in a while. I have a, a pretty good, uh, uh, I guess you'd call it a meme, photograph for today's episode uh, 2302. And the one from Fridays is, I think, pretty good, too. I'll just say this. I'm on kind of a, uh, a 70s sitcom kick right now with the stuff that I'm doing to... Uh, just be a little bit more creative with our marketing. So uh, check that out again, episode 2302 and episode 2301. And, guys, if you're not following me on Instagram, you should. Dorothy is doing such a fantastic job. And, guys, look, look. even if you're not big on Instagram, if you have an account, come follow me. Do it, do it for her. Man, she comes home and we got 35 new followers today. She gets excited. 
So come on over, make Dorothy's day, become our follower on Instagram, and we are putting out some pretty cool stuff, and stuff you will never really hear about or see on the show as well. This is some back back angle, you know, personal stuff as well. Um, next up, I got one from Dan here, and this is what I'm going to call a bad idea, even though it shouldn't be. Dan says, would you allow your child to bring a pocket knife to high school knowing it's against the rules? Is there a good knife alternative like scissors? Maybe it's not worth the risk. I would like my kid to be able to carry a small pocket knife to school like we all did back in the day. Most public schools have zero tolerance it would instantly expel. Homeschooling is not really an option for us. Some religions allow for carrying of a knife. Uh, just trying to think outside the box. Love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Dan. I think this is a terrible idea. Let me go on record first with how I feel about schools being able to expel a child over the possession of a small pocket knife. It is ridiculous. It is nonsensical. It is an example of zero tolerance equals zero common sense. Okay? It doesn't make any sense at all. Back when I was in school, you didn't pull your knife out in school and show it to people. But almost every boy I knew... Like, unlike the mythical, everybody had a gun rack and a rifle and a shotgun in the back. Guys, the only time I saw guns in the back of pickup trucks and gun racks were when guys were going hunting or to the range. People didn't drive around with guns in a rack of their truck. Not because the government wouldn't let you, because it's stupid, because somebody's going to steal your shit. That's just dumb. So it's, you know, that's that false nostalgia. Everybody had a gun rack with a shotgun in it at the high school party. No, they didn't. That's why, you know, we did have we did have photography back in the 1950s. We really did. And I haven't seen a picture of a high school with a whole bunch of guns in the back of pickup trucks. Just that, because, again, people don't like to have their stuff stolen. Okay? All right. So that didn't happen. But kids carrying knives, every boy I knew had a pocket knife. It, you know, I mean, every single boy I knew had a pocket knife, and some of the girls did too. And I don't remember anybody stabbing anybody or shiving anybody or cutting anybody's throat or anything like that. And we don't have a big problem with it going on today. And the kids that would do something like that are not going to not carry a knife because it's it's not allowed, because the rules say no. Because the rules also say you can't stab people, right? So the, we, this is another example of the law only punishes the honest, is, is what this does. It, it prevents the honest person from having a tool that the dishonest person has. It's a lot like the gun debate. However, I am a pragmatist, and we're talking about a world where it is what it is, right? It is what it is. And we also just did a show where we talked about dealing with child protective services and what a nightmare that is. So I'm going to lay out a scenario for you that you'll tell me would never happen with your kid, but it could, and we don't bet on things that are this negative when they happen. Your son goes to school. He tells his best friend he has his knife. Best friend doesn't believe him. He shows him the knife. Best friend thinks it's cool. Tells his other best friend about it. Little girl who's been terrified by TV hears, I don't know your son's name, we'll make one up, Bobby has a knife. Little girl sees something, say something, even though she didn't see it, she heard something, runs to teacher. Bobby has a knife. I'm scared. Teacher goes to Bobby. Do you have a knife? No. Teacher looks at him, doesn't believe him. Says, we're going to walk to the principal's office together. Goes down, do you have a knife on you? No. Want to search you? Can. School resources officer gets called in. School resources officer says, yeah, I'll search him. School research, a resource officer finds a knife. 
He finds a knife, and they're all, you already got problems. There's already potential for expulsion. Now, Bobby's scared. Where'd you get the knife? My dad gave it to me. Maybe not the first time he's asked. Sooner or later, my dad gave it to me. Did he know you were going to bring it to school? Yes. Maybe not the first time, but held long enough, comes out. Maybe they go get Bobby's friend who told a friend. And Bobby told his friend, because you can't count on your kids to not do dumb shit. That's why they're kids. They do dumb shit. Where did Bobby get the knife? His dad got it for him. Did his dad know he was bringing it to school? Yes. Hi, Mr. Bobby's dad. I'm here from Child Protective Services. I'd like to talk to you about your son's safety and the safety of the other children in your son's school. Under the best circumstances, you don't want that knock on your door. Now, I know what some people will say. They'll say, Jack, we can't live in fear of the state. I agree, but we also shouldn't be stupid. And this is stupid because there's no real gain here. What is the gain here? The gain is I defied the system and I rolled the dice on my son's future with me gaming the system? No, what we do is we get your son a knife and we talk about how it is stupid that he can't take to school, but he better not or you're going to bust his ass. Because there is a place for teaching children responsible behavior and I even believe strategic defiance of the state. Trust me, my kid learned that. He's pretty good at it. But there's also strategic compliance with the state. You're in a situation, again, you've got a minor, and I know your kid might be one of the most mature 16-year-olds on planet Earth. We all do stupid shit when we're teenagers. And it takes one person hearing, seeing, etc. To, 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 to then repeat it. And you also need to remember what happens when a person hears something in a school and tells somebody else. You know, Remember the old uh, telephone game where you, you, you say something like, The, the tree leaves are green outside, and you whisper that in the person's ear next to you, and then it goes in the circle, and you're the one that started, and when it gets back to you, you hear what everybody thought they said. Did you know there was actually a reason we used to teach kids to play that game? So they would learn this. It doesn't matter what you've said. If it's something you shouldn't have said, by the time it gets back to you, it will be purple monkey dishwasher. Right? That's the old, that's the old catch-all phrase, purple monkey dishwasher. You say something like, I think, I, I think Tanya is cute, and it comes back, purple monkey dishwasher. Or it comes back, I hate Tanya. Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's how this stuff happens. So you're playing that game with your kid's future and your future. So no, you don't do that. Even though, yes, I, I think it is reasonable, absolutely reasonable, that a teenage child should be able to carry, you know, a, a knife. Now, I don't even think they need to have like a Bowie knife or something like that, right? But a, a, a small pocket knife that's designed to be used if necessary for various functions that we all perform every day? Absolutely. Should you do it in this climate? No. And if you want that to change, then you have to go play their game their way. It's, 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 it's their circus and their monkeys, and you got to get in there and throw shit at each other And you got to go get the school board or the state or the county or whoever sets this policy to change the policy. That, that's the only way that you can get around with this. And I'm not saying a homeschool, and you've said homeschool is not an answer. Well, then that means, again, you're choosing to play their game, though. You're going to their circus. So there's a lot of times that I find a rule to be unfair. 
But if it's not my home, if it's not my property under my control, and I have willfully chosen to go there, and I know you can make a case for, you know, with truancy laws and stuff like that, you know, the, the fact that children are compelled to go to school. Yeah, I know, but again, you're still at a point where if you want that asset to be available to you, these are the rules that we play under. When I was, I give a totally different example, but it's the same thing. When I was uh, 21 years old, I guess 22 years old, recently out of the military, um, I had pierced my ear myself. Talk about dumb shit. Uh, I think I was 19, and we were having a um, New Year's party uh, at, at a bar in Panama. Maybe I was 20. I don't remember. Clouded judgment, right? <laughs> uh, but it was New Year's, and they had a little Christmas tree and uh, set up, and for some reason, somebody thought it would be funny. There was a girl at first that took two of the bulbs off and stuck them in her ear holes, you know, where she had her earrings. And then, like, on a dare, like, a guy did it who had a pierced ear. And then, like, another guy did it that had a pierced ear. And another guy did it. And I'm like, I'll do it. And they're like, well, okay. And I'm like, well, I'll have a hole. So the girl that started this whole thing handed me an earring and said, use my earring to pierce your ear. So I'm like, I don't know if the... She's going to be centered, right? So I let her do it. So she just popped it through my ear. And then I took one of these balls. God knows what kind of infection I could have caused. And I, I hung this ball, you know, in my ear. And uh, I decided after I did that, like, I don't know if I'll care whether my ear's pierced or not in the future, but since there's a hole in it, I might as well keep it open. So I'm in the Army. Can't walk around with an earring. So what I ended up doing is I took, you know, little plastic tabs that, like, a, a, a tag comes on a shirt. It's got a little plastic thing. I ended up sticking it through the ear from the back forward to keep the hole open during the day and putting like one of those little bitty band-aids on the, on the back side of my ear. And uh, then once I was out of uniform, I wore an earring. So I actually, in my youth, I wore an earring uh, for a, a period of time, a few years. And it was just kind of a rebellious statement like because it wasn't really that common back then. And I went to my friend's father's home uh, in 1993 when I had come here to Texas to, to move here. And he's kind of an old Louisiana hick, big old guy, didn't believe in things like that. Boy, don't wear no earring in his ear. If I had been in a bar or my own home and he would have voiced opposition to it, I would have said, you know what, sir, you can go F yourself. But real clearly. He said, I don't want, I don't want those worn by men in my home. Okay, took it out, put it in my pocket. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, you shouldn't have to. It's his house. It was his house. It was my friend's father. Yes, I was a grown man. Yes, I could have told him to F off. I don't know where I would have slept for the next three days since we were there visiting. But it was just, hey, in the end, this is his home. Now, I'm, I'm not going to go out of my way to go back. But while I'm there, I'm going to deal with the situation at hand, and I'm going to respect the rights of the person that owns the home. When I went to a uh, Sepp Holzer seminar in Montana, the lady who was hosting it didn't want me to carry a gun. Okay, it's your property. Now, I don't know why I got singled out because like half the people there were armed and she couldn't believe it, but I'm not going to... You see what I'm saying? And this is how you have to handle the school system. There are certain battles that are worth fighting in that system and there are certain that aren't. And remember, art of war. You never fight a battle unless victory is certain. Well... If, if it gets determined that he has the knife on him, victory is certainly impossible.
defeat is certain in that situation. So we don't do it. That's a bigger lesson in life, guys. Why well, I took so much time on it. It's not just about this one issue. Next up from Zach in Michigan. Zach says, um, I have a small 401k with an old employer, roughly $7,000. Would it be smart to withdraw that to jumpstart my apiary this spring? Should I wait until January uh, to withdraw uh, and start my farm? My old 401k I have rolled over in a private RRA so I could play around with the market for some investing practice. I was thinking about taking out $7,000 and jumpstart my bee business. Figure after taxes, I would get about $5,000, which could get me about 10 to 15 hives and the equipment I need. I'm 28. I live on three acres in Michigan with my wife, who's a stay-at-home mom with our two-year-old. We both enjoy the two hives we have, and we, this would be a more of a side business that we can run together. I make roughly eighty grand a year, but we're hoping to ramp up this business over the next two to three years, eventually replace half of this income or more. On the investment side, I save 10% of my income in a savings account and put 6% in my current employer's Roth 401k. I just thought with a small leftover, uh, my ROI would be better by investing in my business than playing the market. wonder what your thoughts are. Thanks for all you do, Zach, in Michigan. Zach, my initial response is, it's retirement money, dummy. A portion that I earn is mine to keep. And you put it in as a retirement, and it should probably be managed as retirement and not taken. However, you make a compelling case at the end of your question. I can do more with it in a business than it can do for me in an IRA. And the answer to your question there, therein lies, will it really, or do you just want Jack Spirico to give you permission to take money that you know you should leave alone? In other words, what is your business plan? What does your ROI look like? If you have... 10, 15, 20 hives. What does your income look like off of that? What are you basing that on? If you can put that in Excel and show me that, for instance, over the next four years, that you could repay $7,000 back into your retirement and still have money and the asset, I would say you're probably correct. You probably are better off doing this. But can you? Or are you just pulling that number out of your ass because you want to spend this money on beehives? Because let me tell you, I know some beekeepers. And the ones that I know that make the most money, do you know where they make most of their money? Removals. Removals. That's where they make their money. There's a bunch of bees in somebody's wall, and they go take a sawzall and cut it open and take those bees away. And, I mean, I know one beekeeper in particular local to this area that based on what he's told me, he's pulling down forty to fifty thousand dollars a year in removals. I know he makes money on his honey. He has a lot more than ten to twenty hives, though, and he's also making money doing pollination services for organic cotton. So he's hauling truckloads of hives out to the organic cotton fields in West Texas, putting them there, and then he's getting paid to do that, and then he's selling that honey as cotton honey, which actually is a really good quality honey. Um, and he can also say that it was, you know, pollinating organic cotton. Um, and so he's doing well, but I don't, you know, everybody thinks they're going to make money at something. You have two hives. What is your production out of those hives? How much are you producing? Um, if you had that times 10 more, what would you do with it? What's the ROI? What, what is the repayment? Do you want to do this as a side business, or is this really just a hobby? I'll tell you another beekeeper that I know. He is not a professional beekeeper. 
He only does, he only makes money off bees once a year. He doesn't care about honey. You get some honey as a byproduct a little bit, but really his philosophy is you can make bees or you can make honey. He has all of his hives, and he splits his hives into threes every year. So you have one core hive, takes two boxes off, boom, every year, whatever number of hives he has, he makes three times that many. If he had 100, by the end of the splitting, he has 300 hives. He splits them into nukes, and he sells the nukes for a couple hundred bucks pop. Uh, and he sells them all cash, all on one weekend. So he has a time of year that he knows he's going to be able to split them, the time of the year by which they're going to be available. He puts out local advertising, Craigslist, etc., that says, I'll have nukes, this is where they are, you come get them, cash only. And on one day, people drive up, people pay, people take them away. He's selling to people like you. He's selling to people like you that want their hobby, and they'll go and they'll take out their retirement money to buy a beehive. Where do his beehives come from? He builds them. He makes them out of whatever wood he can get his hands on. And he makes money. There's two different ways that I see beekeepers making money. I don't really know of beekeepers making the kind of money necessary to repay back to yourself a $7,000 withdrawal from a retirement account with a dozen beehives in their backyard. I'm not saying they don't exist, because they might. I, you know, I, I, I had my, my turn at playing with bees. I thought they were interesting. Uh, but you know, not everybody can do everything. And based on what I saw come out of my hives, I, I, I don't know that you can make money at that scale. Maybe you can. I mean, you're in, you're in Michigan. Your, your season of flow is so much better than mine, right? You don't have a drastic drought every freaking summer. So, so much so we shouldn't even call it a drought anymore. So maybe you can do really well with this. So I'm not, I'm not crapping on your parade. I'm really not. If you think, This makes sense. All I'm saying is prove it to yourself with numbers. And if you can't prove it to yourself with numbers, then know what you're doing instead of it's for a side hustle, it's for a business, because I want it. And I'm willing to take this money that I had set aside for my future and spend it. And with your income level and with your current savings rate, which is really 16%, I'm kind of sort of okay with it. I would much rather be making this with one piece of information you left off. How much is in that current employer's retirement account? Is it $50,000? $100,000? Where are you on your plan for your retirement? How much money do you have put away? How old do you want to be when you retire? How much does this seven grand? It's going to cost you seven to get five. Really cost you. Because I have another proposal. What if you actually made yourself accountable to the debt? Check this idea out. You say you need about five grand to do this. With your job and your income level, you probably, and if you have reasonable credit, you can probably get a personal loan for most of this money, if not all. Three, four thousand dollars, something like that. On repayment terms to the bank over, let's say, two to three years. So... Since it's for a business, if that's what you're really telling me, Zach, go borrow the money and repay the bank. Because, Jack, you hate credit. I hate buying a TV set with a credit card. Absolutely. Totally hate it. Financing a business? Now, here's why I say to do that. Let's say that this fails miserably. And you end up at a point, because of one reason or another, you really think, I, I, I can't afford to make these payments. Okay. 
go cash the 401k in then, pay off the debt. If you service the debt for one of three years, you'll still be ahead. You'll still end up with something left in that account. It's the same difference, right? And if you won't do it that way, then you're probably misleading yourself on how well you've planned out the numbers. Um, the, 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 the other thing is, and should I wait until January withdrawal to start my farm? I, I'm assuming you don't mean, well, I'm either going to do an apiary or I'm going to invest this in like a market garden. I think you're asking me a tax question there. Assuming that you are, you're going to pay the piper on this sooner or later, but if you, if you go out and do this in January, you're not going to pay the piper till next year, and you really are. Uh, I don't think it actually matters because what you're going to end up doing when you do this withdrawal is you're going to pay the money at the time of the withdrawal anyway. So it doesn't, that doesn't really matter. It does, though, however, put money in your hand maybe before you need it. So to me... You need, there's a lot of things you need to do to set up an aviary, and setting boxes is kind of the last part. Um, so maybe you see how things go until January, February time. I know there's a certain point you got to get your bees ordered if you're going to order bees or what have you, but I'm just telling you, I think there's a, a way to maybe do this for less money. And when you're doing it with, like, it's kind of like found money. It doesn't really hurt you. You don't feel anything. This money was just, like, set away, and it was automatic, and... You don't really like. It's not like going into your bank account and writing a check for five thousand dollars. It is, but to you, it's not. You don't have that attachment to it. So, so under that scenario, you know that I've laid out for you. If you put yourself in a position where it starts to feel that way, then maybe you'll start figuring out I don't need five thousand, or maybe you can do a lot more with five thousand. You know, and if you're buying expensive equipment for like spinning honey or something before you have any honey. You know, those are the people that go out and they buy an SUV the day they find out they're pregnant so they can cart the kids around and they won't even own the damn car by the time the kids are in a soccer game. You know, they have a new one. Doesn't make any sense. So just, you can do what you want, but I'm not going to give you carte blanche permission to go cash in a 401k for beehives. You're going to have to prove to yourself, Excel never lies, put the right data in Excel. And if you can make the numbers work, then you can do it. But if you can make the numbers work, is there a better way forward? Talk to your banker. Find out about a personal loan. Talk to your lo see like because because the money's just there. What what's available to you that you don't even know about? You ever notice the kids that have money put away for college? They never look for scholarships. Millions and millions of dollars go. Is there any kind of a grant? Is there any type of your extension office? Can they do anything for you? Is there a local beekeepers club? Is there some way that you can get bees for less money? Is there some way that you can get equipment? Can you build your own? Is there, you know, is there some way that instead of spending five thousand and end up with twelve hives, you could spend five thousand and end up with the equipment you need plus, you know, twenty or thirty hives? Do you, you, you understand what I'm saying there? And I don't know what that number represents. I just know that it's really easy to spend money like this, and you need to feel the spend so that you can make a better decision. It's just, it's just reality, man. Let's take another one. So this one says, uh, it's from Tom, and it says, What food certification should customers pay attention to? I'm convinced that forage-fed animals uh, are more nutritious than industrial-produced grocery store fare, and I prefer that my meat, eggs, and dairy are produced and butchered humanely. I foolishly watched At the Fork last night. I haven't seen that one. Um, since I don't have the time or money nor inclination to raise a ton of protein for my family, I'm going to have to purchase it. 
I've heard that some labeling organic, pasture-raised, 100% grass-fed don't necessarily mean what a permaculture enthusiast might hope it means. Okay, let me explain something about a permaculture enthusiast. There's two kinds. There's the practical, and there's the people that believe in rainbow-farting unicorns. And if you want to get to the rainbow-farting unicorn level, it doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. Let me continue. Is there a label or certification that we can more or less trust, perhaps, American Grass Food Association? Uh, Jack, what convinces you that ButcherBox does a good job with raising, feeding, and butchering? Well, on ButcherBox, I have talked to uh, Daniel there, who is my representative, about how they source their meat and what they mean by what they say. And I am convinced that it's a high-quality product and the animals are treated, you know, humanely. And you're still being killed, I mean, it's something we have to accept. Like, there, you, there's no place where the animal gets a, you know, uh, it takes a quaalude and dreams of greener pastures and just falls asleep and never wakes up, right? Um, but when you're talking about pastured and grass-fed, those things generally mean what they say they mean, okay? Um, they cannot mean that, too. But here's, here's my hierarchy for meat, period, and, and eggs and dairy. Number one, self-produce. Anything I can self-produce that makes sense for me to do, I'll do it. And the, the reality is, much like you, that's not a lot. A little bit of meat birds, some fish, stuff like that, but self-produce. Number two, local. If it's local, I can look. I can see. I know. The guy I bought a cow from last year, I know where he had it butchered. Same place I take my turkeys, same place I've taken chickens, same place I've taken ducks. I can drive there, and I can see how they do things. So, number two, local. Number three, small producers and suppliers. See, ButcherBox to me is a small supplier. They have to have relationships with their sources, and thereby that maintains a much, you know, a much more controlled situation. From there... Organic. And then from there, regular run-of-the-mill retail. My last choice. And sometimes it's the only choice that's really available if I want a certain thing. The reality is I don't get too worked up about this. To me, there is a definite way that you can discern that an animal was actually grass-fed or pastured in the flavor of the food itself. The biggest reason I trust a supplier like uh, ButcherBox is because I can go down to the grocery store and buy a package of, let's say, Tyson, organ even organic chicken, right? Tyson or Purdue or whatever. And I can open that package up and I can smell that chicken. And it has a smell that I do not like. And if it's commercial, albeit it's worse. But, but basically those animals are treated the same way and they're processed the same way, organic and, and conventional. The only difference is what they're fed. That's it. They can be processed in the same facility the exact same way. They're housed the same way. They're just fed something different. And then a few other things have to be done to compensate for the lack of medication in their feed. But there's a stink to that chicken. And when I open up butcher box chicken and I smell it, it doesn't stink like that. When I take a piece of butcher box pork and I eat that, it doesn't taste like a guinea hog. I'm not going to go there, right? something like that, or a red wattle or something like that, high quality. Uh, it tastes like a pig that was pastured, the same way we did it on Permaethos. But it tastes like a pink pig. And they're not always exactly pink, but a lot like something that Darby Simpson does. 
Can I tell you that all the producers that are producing for them are producing at that level? Probably not. But these are pigs that are out and about, and they're eating more than feed. And they're getting to be, do piggy things in a piggy way. I can tell by the flavor and the taste and the texture of the meat. And I think that's probably the most important thing when it comes to you know, your produce. Let your nose and your mouth and your eyes be your guide. Because the truth is, we can never expect a label to do what we would be able to do for ourselves if we can actually look. And that's why I prefer self-produced and local. And so check in on what you have available to you locally. You know, it, it might mean buying a chest freezer to be able to buy a quarter or a half beef at a time, because that's usually what it takes to make it economical. But see what's available locally first. And, you know, part of the reason I deal with butcher box is because I don't have much of an option. I really don't. Um, and because I don't have that much of an option, um, you know, they were a good solution. And I think that that's the place for companies like ButcherBox. They step in and they serve the markets that are ill-served by local producers. This is big-time cattle country here. And what people do here, it, 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 they all do the same thing. They put the cows on grass and then they send them to a CAFO to finish. That's what they all do. And, and they, don't, they don't put any concern into grass finishing them. You can grass finish cows and they can be wonderful. But you can't make as much money for the guy that's producing 10 or 100. You can't make as much money as by just sending them to the feedlot for a month to finish them off and fatten them up and put weight on them before they hang. So I don't, and I know there's places where it's the exact opposite. Man, you can find good grass-fed beef locally. Just, I have not found a great store. Even the guy down the road that I bought one from, I thought it was good, but I've had so much better in quality that I prefer to, to you know to deal with a company like ButcherBox until I have a better option. So labels, man, again, I think that, again, you, you got to really trust quality above all things. With that, I, I wanted to kind of quickly finish up today with this contrasting uh, two stories. Uh, John and Moore Park sent me both of these. And uh, the first one is California becomes the first state to require a woman on a corporate board. And Governor Moonbeam, Jerry Brown, has stated uh, that he, he says there's been numerous objections to this bill. This is his written statement. And a serious legal concerns have been raised. I don't minimize the potential flaws that indeed may prove fatal to the ultimate implementation. Nevertheless, recent events in Washington, D.C. and beyond make it crystal clear that many are not getting the message. So California's basically passed this law, and it says... If you are a company with your headquarters in California, regardless of your state of incorporation, if your headquarters physically exists within the borders of California, you and you're publicly traded, so this does not apply to small businesses, it doesn't apply to most mid-sized businesses, even many large privately held corporations this would not apply to. This would be a publicly traded company. If your stock trades on the Dow, the NASDAQ, etc., and you are in the state of California, you must have at least one woman on your board of directors. Here's a couple reasons why this, this may be a little bit less important than it sounds. There's probably not many that don't have a single female. Doesn't make the law any less stupid, but most boards of major corporations today do generally have some females and minorities on them, if for no other reason, their own level of virtue signaling. The next thing is, this is state-level virtue signaling. 
Governor Moonbeam there is acknowledging, if this goes before the Supreme Court, it is going to get so smacked down. But many people aren't getting the message, so we're going to do it anyway. So you're going to waste your state's money, uh, which is the money of your people, because you as the state don't have any money, to make a virtue signaling point that women should be on the board. Uh, on top of this, and I, you just got to laugh, the picture they have for this article <coughs> is this young girl uh, holding a sign up that says, when women succeed, America succeeds, and she's wearing one of the pink pussy hats. <sighs> you know, it's just, this is not how you fix inequities. By mandating something, because what this does is, let's well, imagine you're a woman, and you're on your way up the corporate ladder. And you're going to end up in a position like this anyway. Don't you think that now it makes your whole life that's already difficult harder? That people look at you and, and think, eh, she's only here because they made it this way. Additionally, what you're saying here is that the best person for the job shouldn't get the job. The j person we tell you to get the job should get the job. Then I want to contrast with this, um, with what a private sector solution looks like. There's an article in Forbes called, Could Airbnb Point the Way to Fair Distribution of Profits? And again, what Airbnb is doing is they actually want to be able to give away stock. Their reasoning is pretty straightforward. The company does well when its hosts do well, and granting a percentage of its capital to property owners early on can help align the incentives between the companies uh, and, uh, and, and the people who participate in them. The benefit to all other companies such as Uber or Juno have previously proposed the similar scheme, but dropped them when confronted by legal complexities involved. So what they're saying here is you're a host for Airbnb, and you contribute to what the company does. You help us make money. Yeah, you make money, but you're helping us make money. So what we'd like to do is give you some Airbnb stock. And, of course, it's the SEC that says you can't do that. Now, I don't know in what world they think they're protecting people here. Because they say, the, the, all these investing regulations are, you're too stupid to be trusted with your own investments. That's what they're saying. We have to decide what you can and cannot invest in, what you qualify to invest in, what you don't. But this isn't even asking for, think about this, they're not asking you for money. <coughs> what they're saying is, we'll say that 10% or 5% of company shares are set aside in this pool. And that every year some algorithm will kick out you know, shares that go to X number of participants, and you get ownership in the company. So now you have shares. And so then not only do you want to do better because you get more money as a host, but you want to do better because if the company does better, you do well as well because the value of the shares you've been given goes up. And they may be conditional shares, something like, like almost like you get vested shares where you, know, you have to hold them for a certain number of time, or you have to remain a host for a certain number of time, or something like that. But if you, are a, if you are a person and you are renting your home out, and you have a choice between, let's say, HomeAway and Airbnb, and Airbnb is distributing some of the profits back to you, who are you more loyal to? And then, to be more fair to the people that are doing the work, this is what the socialists always say they want, Well, this is a merit-based system. See, that's what socialists don't want, is a merit-based system. I am sure that if I have one beach house on Airbnb, if I get anything, it'll be significantly less than the guy that has 20. And it should be because he's doing more to help the company. He's running more volume than I am. But the contrast here, that's why I decided to run these two side by side. The contrast here between the state solution to a problem of inequity Let's mandate that companies do something that doesn't make any business sense whatsoever. 
And, and here's something else you have to understand about this kind of stupidity. So you tell company XYZ that they have to have at least one woman on their board, and they say, fine, whatever. They might even add a position. You know, a publicly traded company, the cost of one more employee like that, it's, it's a rounding error on their balance sheet. So they do it. And if they're truly a male-dominated company that's in lockstep with how things are going to be done, and they have one discerning voice, what happens every time you take a vote? If the woman votes in opposition every single time, it matters not to the decisions in the company at all. But they have a voice. No, they don't. No. No. If you are incompetent and you really don't belong there, you don't get a, you don't, you're not a voice. No one listens to you. They know they can outvote you. They don't care. So what should we do? We should require they have to have at least 50% of the board. Don't think that that kind of nonsense isn't next. And then a company like Airbnb seeking to grow its market says one of the ways that we can help the people that help us is by giving something back to them voluntarily. And in both cases, government is the problem. Government is the one mandating the placement of a specific class of citizen into some position. And government is the one saying, no, you can't give back. And, and this is everything that's wrong with the state. Summed up in these two things right here. This is why I am, this is why I'm an anarchist. How about this? How about companies hire the people that are best suited for the jobs they're hiring them from, like they already do within whatever the government lets them do? Because let me tell you something right now. A company that sees a person that they really think could do well for them, they're going to hire them. They don't need to be told you have to hire her even though she's a woman. They don't care she's a woman. And all this stupid shit, you know, women work for 70 cents on the dollar, do the same work as a man. Then I'd never hire a man. I would, if that was true, nobody would ever hire a man until you ran out of women to hire. Why would you, why would you pay somebody 30% more? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And again, it's the government interfering. What possible reason would there be to say a company cannot give away some of its stock? Now, you can give away stock to employees, but you can't give away stock to partners. That's basically what you're doing here. Doesn't make any sense, really. But this type of thinking, I think, is where we're headed in the future. Companies creating incentive-based programs that give back to their employees, not through mandate, but, but just through a meritocracy. And I think that's going to become more and more the case as we move into more and more companies like Airbnb and, and Rover and Uber and things like that. Because this is the way forward. We have, the government has basically made it impalatable. To employ people. Who the hell wants to employ people today? And a company with you know, 10, 15 employees, it's still somewhat bearable. But it, 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 who wants to build a company today with 50,000 or 100,000 or a million employees? Who the hell wants that? The cost of those employees is, is, is almost nothing at this point to do with their salary. You cost an employer today more money and all the other shit than you do for your salary. Your salary is not any one of them combined, but when you add up the insurance cost. And overhead and, and compliance and everything else in general, especially a lower paid employee, somebody say middle income, someone making thirty to fifty thousand a year might cost that employer a fifty thousand dollar employer employee today in a state with heavy regulations like California might cost an employer a hundred to hundred and ten, hundred and twenty thousand dollars in total cost. You, you talk about removing the incentive to grow a company and this year. I'll tell you what's going to do. You're going to see more companies. Companies are already leaving California. 
nobody wants to be told, even if you, there will be companies that already have women on their board still leaving because they don't want to be dictated to. And this will probably be smacked down by the Supreme Court as well. But it'll take years and lots of money. And boy, they don't mind spending money when it's not theirs. And remember, the money's never there. It's all, it's always yours. I just thought the contrast was interesting. Anyway, if you like this show and the work that we do, please consider supporting us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I talked about mead making today. The item of the day that I have today for you at tspaz is the FirmTech Mini Auto Siphon with Tubing. Um, this is probably the most valuable piece of specialized equipment a small batch mead maker can have. Like almost everything else you do with small batch mead making, you don't really need anything specialized. You can use... You know, an apple juice bottle is a fermenter. You can use a balloon as an airlock. I like airlocks, but you can use a balloon as an airlock. Getting that mead off of the primary fermentation into a secondary fermenter, pouring it really just doesn't work very well, right? Bottling, I actually transfer into a, a, a bottling bucket with a spigot. Actually, I use a little two and a half gallon carboys. But again, then you're using the siphon, even if not with a bottling wand, you're using the siphon to get it out of that secondary fermenter. Uh, and then from the bottling apparatus into the bottle. And the problem with racking canes is they're made for five to seven-gallon batches. They're great big honking things. They don't work well in a one-gallon container. This thing works perfectly. You attach the tubing to it. You put it. You know, put the thing that you're siphoning to below, and you give it one or two pumps, and boom, everything comes out of it. It's flawless. Again, it's made by a company called FirmTech. Mini auto uh, siphon, it comes with the tubing, so you're ready to go when you get it. And the tubing is long enough that I always cut it in half if I order a new one um, because it's longer than it needs to be, and then I have two separate pieces of tubing that I can use uh, and plenty of, plenty of area, plenty of length to work with it. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. We are going to tie back in to, uh, to last week here with our song of the day from REO Speedwagon. Uh, this one is Time for Me to Fly, and uh, this is the sound that REO Speedwagon is known for, and it's also from probably their, their, their most famous album, You Can Tune a Piano, But You Can't Tune a Fish. Um, this, this was written by lead singer Kevin Cronin, who by the time this album came out was back with the band for good, and it was, it's what made them, again, the, the, this is what made them the mega band that they became in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, it was actually a true story. Uh, he had a, a girlfriend that uh, he really knew he had needed to leave, and he just you know, couldn't do it. Eventually, he, uh, he moved to Colorado for a while to just put some distance between them, and uh, still had trouble letting go. And, but one night, he sat down, and he was at a friend's house, and he's playing his guitar, and uh, he starts writing this song. And he hated the way, something about the way the guitar was tuned, he hated it, but he had seen a guy at Woodstock play with a thumb over the top of the frets, and he tried that, and it kind of gave him a sound he really liked, and it led to this song. It's kind of cool. Now, the message of the song, though, I think is and it's a lot like you know we, we had last week. On Friday, uh, we had uh, Keep Pushing On. These two songs are actually very similarly themed. Because that song was also about leaving a relationship. Maybe this, this, these folks really had a lot of relationships they needed to leave behind. But it can be so much more than a romantic relationship. It can just be any sort of a toxic relationship or any sort of toxic situation. There's a point in life where as grown-ups we need to look back at our lives and say, yeah, sure, I got here because somebody else did something that I didn't like or whatever. But even if it's not your fault, it is your responsibility. And sometimes that responsibility includes leaving behind people, leaving behind jobs, leaving behind situations. But I think actually the hardest thing for people to leave behind 
is their attachment to their own past and their own victimhood. That, that is the thing that I've seen trip up more people than anything else. I think that people get in these relationships like this guy singing about because they want an excuse for what's holding them back. And that person becomes a convenient excuse. Well, absent a person, their situation, their past, their, the fact that they are a victim becomes their excuse for them being hold, held back. Because if we remove that, then you only have your current responsibilities and you're failing to meet them. Now, sometimes it's time to fly. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I've swallowed my pride for you, lived a life for you, but you still make me feel like a thief. You got me stealing your love away, cause you never give it. Peeling the years away, and we can't relive it. Oh, I make you laugh, and you make me cry. I believe it's time for me to fly You said we'd work it out You said that you had no doubt That deep down we were really in love Oh, but I'm tired of holding on to a feeling Goodbye, but it's time for me to fly.